you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. We'll be picking up in verse 19. title of this morning's message is, What's in a Name? And we know that there's a lot in a name. You know, some of us can remember back uh, to elementary school, junior high and high school, those people who had uh, unfortunate first and last name combinations that invited insult and invited puns upon their name. I went to college and seminary. Uh, one of my friends, his initials spelled S-C-A-B. A lot of thought goes into names. In fact, uh, uh, there's a burgeoning industry where you can get professional consultation on what to name your child uh, in order for them to have, quote-unquote, the best advantages in life. Businesses uh, spend uh, millions of dollars researching potential names for products. And here, as we turn our attention to Acts chapter 11, we see the first followers of Christ named Christian. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, Luke writes, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But... There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as uh, we turn our attention to this passage, pray that, that we would... Uh, draw great appreciation for what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. We live in a time where we confess that there are many who have a name but do not have the reality of belonging to you as demonstrated in their lifestyle. Pray that being a Christian would not simply be a title or a name, but it would be the reality of our lives. We pray that if there are any here this morning or watching online who aren't followers of Christ, uh, that today they would see their great need for Christ, and that your Spirit would work in a mighty, powerful way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we turn our attention to this passage, uh, we come uh, and we see initially 
that this great church of Antioch, and Antioch would prove to be a great and influential church, not just during the time period that that Luke is recording here in Acts, but even centuries later, uh, Antioch was one of the anchor churches of the early church, an, uh, uh, an important sending church, a church mightily used by God. And yet, as we see how this group of believers come into existence in this city, we see that they come into existence through the work of unnamed individuals, unsung heroes of the faith. Luke simply tells us that those who had gone to proclaim Christ in Antioch were those who were scattered because of the persecution. We don't know their names. We don't know their backgrounds. We don't know their occupation. All we know of them is that they made the journey to Antioch. And more than that, we understand, as Luke is telling us, that they, some of them made the great jump of making the gospel known to Gentiles. You see that in verse 20. Well, many of them would speak to no one except Jews... There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. They spoke to the Greek-speaking non-Jews, like Peter bringing the gospel to Cornelius there, bringing the gospel to those who were at one time without hope and without God in the world. They are crossing a major gap. This is the first church that's really lived out what we see described in the epistles when Paul speaks of there being neither Jew nor Greek nor barbarian nor Scythian, how all are one in Christ. This is the first, as it were, a multi-ethnic church, and yet it's birthed out of these individuals whose name is forgotten to history. There have been individuals who've lived that way, who've understood that the important thing uh, about life isn't whether their name is remembered, but whether Christ is honored. George Whitfield, the great evangelist during the Great Awakening, uh, said of himself, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be honored. Another time he said, let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me if by any means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. And that's what we have here in these individuals. They're willing to be unsung, unnamed individuals because they understand the important name that is to be remembered isn't their name. It is the name of Jesus. It's at a challenge for life because we often face the temptation of wanting to make a name for ourselves, of wanting our name to be remembered. Remember the first church I pastored, their name was Memorial Baptist Church, and if there was ever a church that lived up to that name, they did. There was memorial plaques on everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. From the pews, to the water fountain, to the kitchen tables, there was a memorial plaque to memorialize uh, those who had contributed or those who had contributions in their memory. And yet, we understand that the only name that we need to be making great is the name of Christ. Well, we find the temptation is often happens in our society to make a name for ourselves, to make our name big, 
we find ourselves walking in a dangerous path. We find in Genesis uh, that uh, what led to the scattering of humanity, the construction of the Tower of Babel, was that those who built it wanted to make a name for themselves, that they would not be forgotten. The surest way to be forgotten is to try to make a name for yourself. It is true that this one life soon shall pass, and only what is done for Christ will last. And so you have these individuals laboring, forgotten, and yet their name is written on high because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who is doing the work. It matters who the foreman is. Paul understood this very reality, that this temptation of placing importance on the names of others. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So you see that reality being lived out here. These individuals, they've been scattered to Antioch, and yet they are building not something for their recognition, for the praise of their name. They're laboring to make Christ famous. And they succeeded. For centuries after this, Antioch would be a powerful and influential church, not because they were important people, but because they had an important gospel to bring to the world. And so just as the Jerusalem church is confronting the inclusion of the Gentiles, remember we had seen last week and the week before Peter had gone to Cornelius. He had uh, ate with the Gentiles. He brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And as we saw last week, he was called to the carpet for that. He was criticized for that. So as the Jerusalem churches come to acknowledge and accept the fact that God had brought salvation to the Gentiles, that God had granted them repentance that leads to life, just as they've come to that acceptance, they hear the report of what God is doing in faraway Antioch. And rather than discouraging it, they want to encourage it. And you know how you can tell that they wanted to encourage it? Because they send somebody who is a uniting influence. They send Barnabas. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Good old Barnabas. It's in his, that's not even his name. That's his nickname. He was such an encourager that they nicknamed him Son of Encouragement. You can imagine the apostles thinking, you know, who are we going to get to encourage this work? 
I know, the son of encouragement. We'll send Barnabas to them. They sent Barnabas. Barnabas proved to be a uniting influence. Barnabas, being in Jerusalem, knew the work of God that had accomplished through Peter and bringing Cornelius and his household to saving faith. And now he comes to encourage those in Antioch to strengthen them in the faith. And we're told in verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So he, he, he sees God working in a mighty, powerful way. And, and he calls them to continue on. To keep doing what they're doing. To remain faithful. To stay the course. You know, think of contemporary Christianity. I think of even our own Southern Baptist Convention. We, we could use some more Barnabases. No, Barnabas isn't envious because God is working where he wasn't. He, he's happy to see God's work begin without him. And he's happy that it will continue without him because Barnabas understands that it's not about Barnabas' reputation. And Barnabas desires that they would be equipped all the more. Remember, it was Barnabas who took Saul to the Jerusalem apostles when Saul left Damascus. It was Barnabas who stepped out on initiative and he took Saul of Tarsus and made those introductions. Saul, Barnabas knew that God's claim on Saul's life was that Saul was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So who better to come into this situation of a church of Jew and Gentile being birthed in the city of Antioch other than Saul of Tarsus? And so we're told in verse 25 that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. So think of this. You have a church of Jew and Gentile birthed here. Those who are scattered have been proclaiming the gospel to non-Jews. Think of the context of the day. If you were a Greek, which is any type of Greek-speaking Gentile, you knew the Jews had nothing to do with you. If you were a Jew in the synagogue, you knew that you ought not to have anything to do with the Gentiles. They were two separate peoples. There was, as the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians, there was a wall of division between Jew and Gentile. It seemed all surmountable. And imagine, if you were, you're an unbeliever. And you're observing what's going on. You, you see these two disparate groups of people coming together. The Jews wouldn't be eager to claim the Jews having fellowship with the Gentiles. 
And the pagan Gentiles would not be eager to claim the Gentiles who were having fellowship with the Jews. They'd understand that these are two groups that should not be mixing. They're like oil and water, and yet they have mixed. They've come together. So the dilemma being faced by the outside world is, what do you call them? They're not behaving and acting like Jews, and they're not really Gentiles either. They're not worshiping the idols in the temple. There is something entirely new. In the early centuries, they would call the church, the people of Christ, a, 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 a new race gathered from Jew and Gentile. Paul would say that, uh, that the Jew and the Gentile coming together in the church was one new man in Christ. And because of that, the watching world had to come up with a, a new name, a unique name. And so we were, we are told in verse 26 that it was in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. They're called Christians by their enemies. Think of the disruption this would do. Think of the disruption the Jews and the Gentiles would see. This upset the social order and often did as we see uh, later on. Uh, we, we see Paul preaching and he's accused of turning the world upside down. This wasn't a badge of honor. More likely than not, that this was a name given by the Roman authority so that they could uh, hem in and understand who they might need to target in the future. The, the, the construct of Christian is the same that you find in Herodian or Augustinian. So th this is a way of saying these people are the household of Christ. They belong to Christ. And it became a dangerous name to bear. One author, Justin Taylor, writes, It is striking that in non-Christian first century sources, the name Christ and Christian are invariably associated with public disorders. became such a dangerous thing to bear the name of Christ that it became a criminal offense. Writing around 110, Pliny wrote the Roman emperor asking what he was to do with those who were called Christian. He speaks of gathering them up and arresting them, and he says to the emperor, I asked them whether they were Christian. If they admitted it, I asked them a second and a third time, threatening them with execution. Simply bearing the name Christian was grounds for execution. Those who remained obdurate, I ordered to be executed, for I was in no doubt, whatever it was which they were confessing, that their obstinacy and their inflexible stubbornness should be at any rate punished. Decades after the church is called Christians in Antioch. It has become such a name that to bear the name of Christ could lead to death. It was, it was because there was a unique identity that didn't fit what broader society, Jew or Gentile, understood. It is 
especially stood in contrast to the immorality of the pagan world. He speaks of the measures they would go to try to convince people to renounce the name Christian. It says others who were named by an informer stated that they were Christians and then denied it. They said that, in fact, they had been, but abandoned their allegiance some three years previously, some more years earlier, and one or two as many as 20 years before. All these as well worshipped your statue and images of gods and blasphemed Christ. They maintained, however, that all that their guilt or error involved was that they were accustomed to assemble at dawn on a fixed day to sing a hymn antiphonally to Christ as God and bind themselves by an oath not for the commission of some crime but to avoid acts of theft, brigandage, and adultery, not to break their word and not to withhold money deposited with them when asked for it. When these rites were completed, it was their custom to depart and then to assemble again to take food, which was, however, common and harmless. They had ceased, they said, to do this following my edict, by which, in accordance with your instruction, I had outlawed the existence of secret brotherhoods. So I sought it all the more necessary to ascertain the truth from two maidservants who were called deaconesses even by employing torture. I found nothing other than a debased and boundless superstition. So you notice what separated, if for centuries that was what separated Christians from everyone else. That's what brought them a badge of dishonor that they worshiped Christ as God, that they would not engage in immorality, that they bound themselves by oath not to steal, not to commit acts of robbery, not to commit adultery, not to lie, not to withhold charity, and because they fellowshiped with one another. You're Jew and Gentile coming together, seeking to live for God's glory, having fellowship with one another. And the Romans decide, okay, that's not Jew, that's not Gentile. Well, they, they keep talking about Jesus Christ. They must be Christians. That's how that name came about. The emperor wrote back to Pliny and told him, that Christians are not to be sought out. If brought before you and found guilty, they must be punished, but in such a way that a person who denies that he is a Christian and demonstrates this by action, that is, by worshiping our gods, may pardon, obtain pardon for repentance, even if his previous record is suspect. So we have a, a, a new name, a unique name, they're called Christians. They're called Christians because their opponents see that there is something different about them. It doesn't mesh with their expectation of any other group. This is going to cause them some harm later on. See, there were legal protections for Jews. Jews weren't required to offer sacrifice to Caesar. Jews weren't required to worship Caesar as God. But if you weren't a Jew, you did not have those legal protections. The Jews would be adamant. Those followers of Christ, they aren't Jews. They're not of us. They don't belong to us. 
There's something different. They're Christians. As we see the unique name that they had in Antioch, we understand that that name came because there was a reality to it. There was a difference. They didn't come together and have a marketing committee and decide, what can we call ourselves in a community that will set us apart? The community called them something different because they lived lives that were set apart from those around them. Unfortunately, one of the problems that we find in our day and age, there are many that will claim the name of Christian who have never had a life that represents the differentness that being a follower of Christ is meant to have. The name Christian is actually used only twice, three times in the New Testament. Twice here in the book of Acts and once in 1 Peter. And Peter's going to tell us that we are a peculiar people called to live for the praise of His glory. He's going to say that we might suffer as Christians. That it's better to suffer as a Christian than an evildoer. We're to have a different life. You know, in our day and age... Names don't seem to have value. There are individuals that will throw titles around. Think of church stories I've heard. Some churches will make put individuals in positions and think, you know, if you give them a title, if you give them a name, then they'll become faithful. I've heard stories where churches have made individuals deacons, made them Sunday school teachers. You throw them title after title thinking if you give enough titles to someone, they'll start following right. You don't name something in order for it to become something. You, you, you don't call your car an airplane so you can take off and fly around. Call your car an airplane as much as you want. You're not going to catch any air. You're not going to be landing at the airport. You name something in recognition of what it is. Think of our own Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, We have approximately 13 million Southern Baptists, and yet less than half of them are actually meaningfully involved in the life of a local church. See, the early church... And even the pagan world understood that there was something different about followers of Christ. There was a a common identity. There was a community there. There was a a, a distinct group that was recognizable in their fellowship and their common life together. This unique identity lived itself out in their actions. They weren't just called Christians. They were Christians. We're told in verse 27, Now in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples, those who were called Christians, they didn't think to themselves, well, tough luck for everyone else. Tough luck for the followers of Christ in Jerusalem. We're going to worry about us and ours. 
They understood that they were part of something bigger than themselves. They understood that they were part of something bigger than what they had going in Antioch. We're told in verse 29, the disciples determined. That's the disciples at Antioch. They determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Understood that they, they had something and an identity that transcended their city. That transcended their own small group. They understood that being a follower of Christ made them a part of a bigger group. To the brothers living in Judah. They understood that being a follower of Christ brought them into a family. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What a difference almost 2,000 years have made. Nobody would have gone out of their way after the saints had been named Christians in Antioch to try to have somebody call them a Christian. For centuries afterwards, uh, it would be something you would not want known, especially to the governing authorities. You know, we saw with Pliny in, during the reign of Trajan that if you were obstinate enough to tell the governing authorities repeatedly, I am a Christian, three times you were out. All because you worship Christ as God. All because you are committed to a life of holiness. We look at the world that we find ourselves in. We look at our own country. And the fact of the matter is there are many who have taken the name Christian upon themselves without any reality to it. I imagine if to bear the name of Christ you had to publicly renounce all the things that Christians originally publicly renounced, it would probably eliminate a good percentage of those who profess to be followers of Christ. Probably lose whole denominations as a result of it. And yet, that was the biblical understanding that a Christian is something different. The Apostle Paul would say that if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. They were willing to bear the name of Christian because they understood that the name of Christ and the identity they had in Christ was far greater. So I ask you, what, what, what's more important? Your name or the name of Christ? When you die, do you want people remembering you? Or do you want them remembering the Christ who worked through you? As we come to this time of invitation, I ask you, if you were brought up on a criminal trial, would there be enough evidence in your life Monday through Saturday to convict you of being a follower of Christ? Or would the judge and the jury have to say, well, there's nothing here. The early believers in Antioch were called Christians because there was something there. There was something more than a name. There was a reality to it. So as we come to this time of invitation, I ask you, is there a reality to the name that you bear? 
If there's no reality to it, I, I would invite you to place your faith in Christ. To trust Him and to walk in obedience to Him. To walk as He walked. You know, the believers were initially called uh, followers of the way. Meaning that they were following after Jesus. They were walking in His way. And here they're called Christians because they're Christ household. They're walking with Christ. They're Christ people. Because they look like Christ. They talk like Christ. They follow Christ. May that be true of all of us in all the areas of our lives. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, as we come to this time of invitation, we pray that where we fall short, uh, that your grace would be evident in our lives. We pray that we would live in such a way that we would make your name great, that we would make the name of Christ renowned wherever we are. So easy to try to make other things sound big and important, but we understand that at the end of the day, that only one, what Christ has done is worth magnifying. So we pray that we would bring him honor and glory. Pray that if there are any in here this morning or watching online who have a name but no reality to it, that your spirit would grant them repentance leading to life. For this we pray in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.